0: Hi everyone, this is Robert. Welcome to The Well-Told Tale. Every week we bring to life the greatest science fiction and fantasy stories ever written. The Well-Told Tale is now available as both a podcast and on YouTube, as well as being available early for my patrons every week over on patreon.com. There's a link in the description if you're interested in that, or getting access to some stories I record just for my patrons. Today, we continue with part four of The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. We last saw, or didn't see, the Invisible Man running down a hill towards the village of Burdock. He'd been chasing his unwilling partner in crime, Thomas Marvel, who had apparently run off with his notebooks and the money he had stolen. The notebooks contain the only chance the Invisible Man has of working out how to make himself not invisible, so he's desperate to get hold of them but every human contact increases his chances of being caught. We pick up the story in the village of Burdock. So, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy part four of The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. Chapter 16 In The Jolly Cricketers The Jolly Cricketers is just at the bottom of the hill where the tram lines begin, The barman lent his fat red arms on the counter and talked of horses with an anemic cabman, while a black-bearded man in grey snapped up biscuit and cheese, drank Burton and conversed in American with a policeman off duty. "'What's the shouting about?' said the anemic cabman, going off at a tangent, trying to see up the hill over the dirty yellow blind and the low window of the inn. Someone ran by outside. "'Fire, perhaps?' said the barman." Footsteps approached, running heavily. The door was pushed open violently and Marvel, weeping and dishevelled, his hat gone, the neck of his coat torn open, rushed in, made a convulsive turn and attempted to shut the door. It was held half-open by a strap. "'Coming!' he bawled, his voice shrieking with terror. "'He's coming! The visible man! After me! For God's sake! help! 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 Help!' ''Shut the doors,'' said the policeman. ''Who's coming? What's the row?'' He went to the door, released the strap, and it slammed. The American closed the other door. ''Let me go inside,'' said Marvel, staggering and weeping, but still clutching the books. ''Let me go inside. Lock me in somewhere. I tell you he's after me. I gave him the slip. He said he'd kill me. And he will.'' ''You're safe,'' said the man with the black beard. ''The door's shut. What's it all about?'' Let me go inside, said Marvel, and shrieked aloud as a blow suddenly made the fastened door shiver and was followed by a hurried rapping and a shouting outside. Hello, cried the policeman. Who's there? Mr. Marvel began to make a frantic dive at panels that looked like doors. He'll kill me! He's got a knife or something! For God's sake! Here you are, said the barman. Come in here. And he held up the flap of the bar. Mr. Marvel rushed behind the bar as the summons outside was repeated. "'Don't open the door!' he screamed. "'Please! Don't open the door! "'Where shall I hide?' "'This this invisible man, then?' asked the man with the black beard, "'with one hand behind him. "'Guess it's about time we saw him.' The window of the inn was suddenly smashed in, and there was a screaming and running to and fro in the street. The policeman had been standing on the settee, staring out, craning to see who was at the door. He got down with raised eyebrows.' "'It's that,' he said. "'The barman stood in front of the bar parlour door, "'which was now locked on Mr. Marvel, "'and stared at the smashed window "'and came round to the other two men. "'Everything was suddenly quiet. "'I wish I had my truncheon,' said the policeman, "'going irresolutely towards the door. "'Once we open, in he comes. "'There's no stopping him.' "'Don't you be in too much hurry about that door,' "'said the anemic cabman anxiously.' "'Draw the bolts,' said the man with the black beard, "'and if he comes,' he showed a revolver in his hand. "'That won't do,' said the policeman. "'That's murder.' "'I know what country I'm in,' said the man with the beard. "'I'm going to let off at his legs. "'Draw the bolts.' "'Not with that blinking thing going off behind me,' "'said the barman, craning over the blind. "'Very well,' said the man with the black beard, "'and stooping down, revolver ready, drew them himself. "'Barman, cabman and policeman faced about.' "'Come in,' said the bearded man in an undertone, "'standing back and facing the unbolted doors with his pistol behind him. "'No one came in. The door remained closed. Five minutes afterwards, when a second cabman pushed his head in, "'cautiously they were still waiting, "'and an anxious face peered out of the bar parlour and supplied information. "'Are all of the doors of the house shut?' asked Marvel. "'He's going round, prowling round. He's as artful as the devil.' "'Good Lord,' said the burly barman. "'There's the back. Just watch them doors. I say!' He looked about him helplessly. The bar parlour door slammed and they heard the key turn. "'There's the yard door and the private door. The yard door!' He rushed out of the bar. In a minute he reappeared with a carving knife in his hand. "'The yard door was open,' he said, and his fat under-lip dropped. "'He may be in the house now,' said the first cabman. "'He's not in the kitchen,' said the barman. "'There's two women there and I've stabbed every inch of it with this little beef slicer "'and they don't think he's come in. "'They haven't noticed. "'Have you fastened it?' asked the first cabman. "'I'm out of frocks,' said the barman. "'The man with the beard replaced his revolver "'and even as he did so, the flap of the bar was shut down and the bolt clicked "'and then, with a tremendous thud, the catch of the door snapped "'and the bar parlour door burst open.' They heard Marvel squeal like a caught leveret, and forthwith they were clambering over the bar to his rescue. The bearded man's revolver cracked, and the looking-glass at the back of the parlour starred and came smashing and tinkling down. As the barman entered the room, he saw Marvel, curiously crumpled up and struggling against the door that led to the yard and the kitchen. The door flew open while the barman hesitated, and Marvel was dragged into the kitchen. There was a scream and a clatter of pans. Marvel, head down and lugging back obstinately, was forced to the kitchen door and the bolts were drawn. Then the policeman, who had been trying to pass the barman, rushed in, followed by one of the cabmen, gripped the wrist of the invisible hand that collared Marvel, was hit in the face and went reeling back. The door opened and Marvel made a frantic effort to obtain a lodgment behind it. Then the cabman collared something. I got him, said the cabman. The barman's red hands came clawing at the unseen. "'Here he is!' said the barman. Mr Marvel released, suddenly dropped to the ground, and made an attempt to crawl behind the legs of the fighting men. The struggle blundered around the edge of the door. The voice of the invisible man was heard for the first time yelling out sharply as the policeman trod on his foot. Then he cried out passionately, and his fists flew round like flails. The cabman suddenly whooped and doubled up, kicked under the diaphragm. The door into the bar parlour from the kitchen slammed and covered Mr Marvel's retreat. Men in the kitchen found themselves clutching at and struggling with empty air. "'Where's he gone?' cried the man with the beard. "'Out?' "'This way,' said the policeman, stepping into the yard and stopping." A piece of tile whizzed by his head and smashed among the crockery on the kitchen table. "'I'll show him!' shouted the man with a black beard, and suddenly a steel barrel shone over the policeman's shoulder, and five bullets had followed one another into the twilight whence the missile had come. As he fired, the man with the beard moved his hand in a horizontal curve so that his shots radiated out into the narrow yard like spokes from a wheel. A silence followed. Five cartridges!' said the man with the black beard. That's the best of all. Four aces and a joke. Get a lantern, someone, and come and feel about for his body. Chapter 17 Dr. Kemp's Visitor Dr. Kemp had continued writing in his study until the shots aroused him. Crack! 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 They came one after another. Hello, said Dr. Kemp, putting his pen into his mouth again and listening. Who's letting off revolvers in burdock? "'What are the asses at now?' "'He went to the south window, threw it up and, leaning out, "'stared down on the network of windows, beaded gas lamps and shops, "'with its black interlocking roof and yard that made up the town at night. "'Looks like a crowd down the hill,' he said, "'by the cricketers,' and remained watching.' Thence his eyes wandered over the town to far away, where the ship's lights shone and the pier glowed, a little illuminated, faceted pavilion like a gem of yellow light. The moon in its first quarter hung over the westward hill, and the stars were clear and almost tropically bright. After five minutes, during which his mind had travelled into a remote speculation of social conditions of the future and lost itself at last over the time dimensions, Dr. Kemp roused himself with a sigh, pulled down the window again, and returned to his writing desk. It must have been about an hour after this that the front door bell rang. He had been writing slackly and with intervals of abstraction since the shots. He sat listening. He heard the servant answer the door and waited for her feet on the staircase, but she did not come. Wonder what that was, said Dr. Kemp. He tried to resume his work, failed, got up, went downstairs from his study to the landing, rang, and called over the balustrade to the housemaid as she appeared in the hall below. Was that a letter? he asked. Only a runaway ring, sir, she answered. I'm restless tonight, he said to himself. He went back to his study, and this time attacked his work resolutely. In a little while he was hard at work again, and the only sounds in the room were the ticking of the clock and the subdued shrillness of his quill, hurrying in the very centre of the circle of light his lampshade threw on his table. It was two o'clock before Dr Kemp had finished his work for the night. He rose, yawned, and went downstairs to bed. He had already removed his coat and vest when he noticed that he was thirsty— he took a candle and went down to the dining room in search of a siphon and whisky. Dr Kemp's scientific pursuits have made him a very observant man, and as he recrossed the hall, he noticed a dark spot in the linoleum near the mat at the foot of the stairs. He went on upstairs, and then it suddenly occurred to him to ask himself what the spot on the nylonium might be. Apparently some subconscious element was at work.' At any rate, he turned with his burden, went back to the hall, put down the siphon and whisky and bent down, touching the spot. Without any great surprise, he found it had the stickiness and colour of drying blood. He took up his burden again and returned upstairs, looking about him and trying to account for the blood spot. On the landing he saw something and stopped, astonished. The door handle of his own room was blood-stained. He looked at his own hand. It was quite clean, and then he remembered that the door of his room had been open when he came down from his study, and that consequently he had not touched the handle at all. He went straight into his room, his face quite calm, perhaps a trifle more resolute than usual. His glance, wandering inquisitively, fell on the bed. On the counterpane was a mess of blood, and the sheet had been torn. He had not noticed this before, because he had walked straight to the dressing table. On the further side, the bedclothes were depressed as if someone had been recently sitting there. Then he had an odd impression that he had heard a low voice saying, Good heavens, Kemp. But Dr. Kemp was no believer in voices. He stood staring at the tumbled sheets. Was that Really a voice? He looked about again, but noticed nothing further than the discorded and bloodstained bed. Then he distinctly heard a movement across the room, near the wash-hand stand. All men, however highly educated, retain some superstitious inklings. The feeling that is called eerie came upon him. He closed the door of the room, came forward to the dressing-table and put down his burdens. Suddenly, with a start, he perceived a coiled and blood-stained bandage of linen rag hanging in mid-air between him and the wash handstand. He stared at this in amazement. It was an empty bandage, a bandage properly tied, but quite empty. He would have advanced to grasp it, but a touch arrested him, and a voice speaking quite close to him. "'Kemp,' said the voice. Hey said Kemp with his mouth open. Keep your nerve, said the voice. I'm an invisible man. Kemp made no answer for a space, simply stared at the bandage. Invisible man, he said. I am an invisible man, repeated the voice. The story he had been active to ridicule only that morning rushed through Kemp's brain. He does not appear to have been either very much frightened or very greatly surprised at the moment. Realisation came later. "'I thought it was all a lie,' he said. The thought uppermost in his mind was the reiterated arguments of the morning. "'Have you a bandage on?' he asked. "'Yes,' said the invisible man. "'Oh,' said Kemp, and then roused himself. "'I say,' he said, "'but this is a nonsense. "'It's some trick.' He stepped forward suddenly and his hand extending towards the bandage met invisible fingers. He recoiled at the touch and his colour changed. Keep steady, Kemp, for God's sake. I want help badly. Stop! The hand gripped his arm. He struck at it. Kemp! cried the voice. Kemp, keep steady! And the grip tightened. A frantic desire to free himself took possession of Kemp. The hand of the bandaged arm gripped his shoulder, and he was suddenly tripped and flung backwards upon the bed. He opened his mouth to shout, and the corner of the sheet was thrust between his teeth. The Invisible Man had him down grimly, but his arms were free, and he struck and tried to kick savagely. "'Listen to reason, will you?' said the Invisible Man, sticking to him in spite of a pounding in the ribs. "'By heaven, you'll madden me in a minute! Lie still, you fool!' Bawled to the invisible man in Kemp's ear. Kemp struggled for another moment and then lay still. If you shout, I'll smash your face, said the invisible man, relieving his mouth. I'm an invisible man. It's no foolishness and no magic. I really am an invisible man, and I want your help. I don't want to hurt you, but if you behave like a frantic rustic, I must. Don't you remember me, Kemp? Griffin, of university college let me get up said kemp i'll stop where i am and let me sit quiet for a moment he sat up and felt his neck i am griffin of university college and i have made myself invisible i'm just an ordinary man a man you have known made invisible griffin said kemp griffin answered the voice. "'a younger student than you were, almost an albino, six feet high and broad, "'with a pink and white face and red eyes, who won the medal for chemistry. I, "'I'm i confused,' said Kemp. "'My brain is rioting. What has this to do with Griffin?' "'I am Griffin,' Kemp thought. "'It's horrible,' he said. "'But what devilry must happen to make a man invisible?' "'It's no devilry. It's a process, sane and intelligible, though.' "'It's horrible,' said Kemp. "'How on earth? It's horrible enough, but I'm wounded and in pain and tired. "'Great God! Kemp, you are a man. Take it steady. "'Give me some food and drink and let me sit down here.' "'Kemp stared at the bandage as it moved across the room, "'then saw a basket chair dragged across the floor and come to rest near the bed.' It creaked, and the seat was depressed the quarter of an inch or so. He rubbed his eyes and felt his neck again. This beats ghosts, he said, and laughed stupidly. That's better. Thank heaven you're getting sensible. All oh, silly, said Kemp, knuckled his eyes. Give me some whiskey. I'm near dead. It didn't feel so. Where are you? If I get up, shall I run into you? There? All right. Whiskey. Here. Where shall I give it to you? The chair creaked and Kemp felt the glass drawn away from him. He let go by an effort. His instinct was all against it. It came to rest poised twenty inches above the front edge of the seat in the chair. He stared at it in infinite perplexity. This is... this must be hypnotism. You have suggested you are invisible. Nonsense, said the voice. It's frantic. Listen to me. "'I demonstrated conclusively this morning,' began Kemp, "'that invisibility, never mind what you've demonstrated—' "'I'm starving,' said the voice, "'and the night is chilly to a man without clothes.' "'Food?' said Kemp. "'The tumbler of whisky tilted itself.' "'Yes,' said the invisible man, wrapping it down. "'Have you a dressing gown?' Kemp made some exclamation in an undertone. He walked to a wardrobe and produced a robe of dingy scarlet— This do? he asked. It was taken from him. It hung limp for a moment in mid-air, fluttered weirdly, stood full and decorous, buttoning itself, and sat down in his chair. Drawers, socks, slippers would be a comfort, said the unseen curtly, and food. Anything. But this is the insanest thing I was ever in in my life. He turned out his drawers for the articles and then went downstairs to ransack the larder. He came back up with some cold cutlets and bread, pulled up a light table and placed them before his guest. Never mind knives, said his visitor, and a cutlet hung in mid-air with a sound of gnawing. Invisible, said Kemp, and sat down on a bedroom chair. I always like to get something about me before I eat, said the invisible man with a full mouth, eating greedily. Queer fancy. I suppose that wrist is all right, said Kemp. Trust me, said the invisible man. Of all the strange and wonderful... Exactly. But it's odd I should blunder into your house to get my bandaging. My first stroke of luck. Anyhow, i meant to sleep in this house tonight. You must stand that. It's a filthy nuisance, my blood showing, isn't it? Quite a clot over there. Gets visible as it coagulates, I see. It's only the living tissue I've changed, and only for as long as I'm alive. I've been in the house three hours. But how's it done? began Kemp, in a tone of exasperation. "'Confound it! The whole business! It's unreasonable from beginning to end!' "'Quite reasonable,' said the Invisible Man. "'Perfectly reasonable.' He reached over and secured the whiskey bottle. Kemp stared at the devouring dressing-gown. A ray of candlelight penetrated a torn patch in the right shoulder, making a triangle of light under the left ribs. "'What were the shots?' he asked. "'How did the shooting begin?' There was a real fool of a man, a sort of confederate of mine, curse him, who tried to steal my money. Has done so. Is he invisible too? No. Well, can't I have some more to eat before I tell you all that? I'm hungry, in pain, and you want me to tell you stories? Kemp got up. You didn't do any shooting, he asked. Not me, said his visitor. Some fool I'd never seen fired at random. A lot of them got scared. They all got scared at me. Curse them, I say. I want to eat more than this, Kemp. I'll see what there is to eat downstairs, said Kemp. Not much, I'm afraid. After he had done eating and he made a heavy meal, the invisible man demanded a cigar. He bit the end savagely before Kemp could find a knife and cursed when the outer leaf loosened. It was strange to see him smoking. His mouth and throat, pharynx and nares, became visible as a sort of swirling smoke cast. This blessed gift of smoking, he said, and puffed vigorously. I'm lucky to have fallen upon you, Kemp. You must help me. Fancy tumbling on you just now. I'm in a devilish scrape. I've been mad, I think. The things I've been through. But we will do things yet, let me tell you he helped himself to more whisky and soda. Kemp got up, looked at him and fetched a glass from his spare room. "'It's wild, but I suppose I may drink.' "'You haven't changed much, Kemp, these dozen years. You fair men don't. Cool and methodical after the first collapse, I must tell you. We will work together.' "'But how was it all done?' said Kemp. "'And how did you get like this?' For God's sake, let me smoke in peace for a little while, and then I will begin to tell you. But the story was not told that night. The Invisible Man's wrist was growing painful, he was feverish, exhausted, and his mind came round to brood upon his chase down the hill and the struggle about the inn. He spoke in fragments about Marvel, he smoked faster, his voice grew angry. Kemp tried to gather what he could. "'He was afraid of me. I could see that he was afraid of me,' said the Invisible Man many times over. "'He meant to give me the slip. He was always casting about. What a fool I was.' "'The cur! I should have killed him!' "'Where did you get the money?' asked Kemp abruptly. "'The Invisible Man was silent for a space. "'I can't tell you tonight,' he said. He groaned suddenly and leant forward, supporting his invisible head on invisible hands.' "'Kemp,' he said, "'I've had no sleep for near three days except a couple of doses of an hour or so. "'I must sleep soon.' "'Well, have my room. Have this room. "'But how can I sleep? "'If I sleep, he will get away.' "'Ugh! What does it matter?' "'What's the shot wound?' asked Kemp abruptly. "'Nothing. Scratch and blood. "'Oh, God, how I want sleep.' "'Why not?' The Invisible Man appeared to be regarding Kemp, because I've got a particular objection to being caught by my fellow men, he said slowly. Kemp started, fool that I am, said the Invisible Man, striking the table smartly. I've put the idea into your head. Chapter 18 The Invisible Man Sleeps Exhausted and wounded as the Invisible Man was, he refused to accept Kemp's word that his freedom should be respected. He examined the two windows of the bedroom, drew up the blinds and opened the sashes to confirm Kemp's statement that a retreat by them would be possible. Outside, the night was very quiet and still, and the new moon was setting over the down. Then he examined the keys of the bedroom and the two dressing-room doors to satisfy himself that these also could be made an assurance of freedom. Finally, he expressed himself satisfied. He stood on the hearthrug, and Kemp heard the sound of a yawn. I'm sorry, said the Invisible Man, if I cannot tell you all that I have done tonight. But I am worn out. It's grotesque, no doubt. It's horrible. But believe me, Kemp, in spite of your arguments of this morning, it is quite a possible thing. I have made a discovery. I meant to keep it to myself. I can't. I must have a partner, and you... We can do such things, but tomorrow. Now, Kemp, I feel as though I must sleep or perish. Kemp stood in the middle of the room, staring at the headless garment. I suppose I must leave you, he said. It's incredible. Three things happening like this, overturning all my preconceptions, would make me insane, but it's real. Is there anything more that I can get you? "'Only bid me good-night,' said Griffin. "'Good-night,' said Kemp, and shook an invisible hand. He walked sideways to the door. Suddenly the dressing-gown walked quickly towards him. "'Understand me,' said the dressing-gown. "'No attempts to hamper me, or capture me, or—' Kemp's face changed a little. "'I thought I gave you my word,' he said.' Kemp closed the door softly behind him, and the key was turned upon him forthwith. Then, as he stood with an expression of passive amazement on his face, the rapid feet came to the door of the dressing-room, and that, too, was locked. Kemp slapped his brow with his hand. "'Am I dreaming? Has the world gone mad, or have I?' He laughed and put his hand to the locked door. Barred out of my own bedroom by a flagrant absurdity,' he said." He walked to the head of the staircase, turned and stared at the locked doors. It's fact, he said. He put his fingers to his slightly bruised neck. Undeniable fact. But he shook his head hopelessly, turned and went downstairs. He lit the dining room lamp, got out a cigar and began pacing the room. Now and then he would argue with himself. Invisible, he said. is Is there such a thing as an invisible animal? In the sea, yes, thousands, millions, all the larvae, all the little norplea and tornarius and the microscopic things, the jellyfish. In the sea, there are more things invisible than visible. I never thought of that before. And in the ponds, too, all those little pond life things, specks of colourless, translucent jelly. But in air, no, it can't be. But after all, why not? If a man was made of glass, he would still be visible. His meditation became profound. The bulk of three cigars had passed into the invisible Lord, diffused as a white ash over the carpet before he spoke again. Then it was merely an exclamation. He turned aside, walked out of the room and went into his little consulting room and lit the gas there. It was a little room, because Dr Kemp did not live by practice, and in it were the day's newspapers. The morning's paper lay carelessly opened and thrown aside. He caught it up, turned it over, and read the account of a strange story from Iping that the mariner at Port Stowe had spelt over so painfully to Mr Marvel. Kemp read it swiftly. "'Wrapped up?' said Kemp. "'Disguised? Hiding it? No one seems to have been aware of his misfortune.' What the devil is his game? He dropped the paper and his eye went seeking. Ah, he said, and caught up the St James's Gazette, lying folded up as it arrived. Now we shall get to the truth, said Dr Kemp. He rent the paper open, a couple of columns confronted him. An entire village in Sussex goes mad, was the heading. "'Good heavens!' said Kemp, reading eagerly an incredulous account of the events in Iping of the previous afternoon that have already been described. Over the leaf, the report in the morning paper had been reprinted. He re-read it. "'Ran through the streets, striking right and left, Jaffers insensible Mr Huxter in great pain, unable to describe what he saw, painful humiliation of the vicar. "'Woman!' ill with terror. Windows smashed. This extraordinary story, probably a fabrication. Too good not to print. He dropped the paper and stared blankly in front of him. Probably a fabrication. He caught up the paper again and reread the whole business. But when does the tramp come in? Why the deuce was he chasing a tramp? He sat down abruptly on the surgical bench. He's not only invisible, he said. But he's mad. Homicidal. When dawn came to mingle its pallor with the lamplight and cigar smoke of the dining-room, Kemp was still pacing up and down, trying to grasp the incredible. He was altogether too excited to sleep. His servants, descending sleepily, discovered him and were inclined to think that overstudy had worked this ill on him. He gave them extraordinary but quite explicit instructions to lay breakfast for two in the Belvedere study, and then to confine themselves to the basement and ground floor. Then he continued to pace the dining room until the morning's paper came. That had much to say and little to tell, beyond the confirmation of the evening before, and a very badly written account of another remarkable tale from Port Burdock, This gave Kemp the essence of the happenings at the Jolly Cricketers, and the name of Marvel. "'He has made me keep up with him twenty-four hours,' Marvel testified. Certain minor facts were added to the Iping story, notably the cutting of the village telegraph wire, but there was nothing to throw light on the connection between the Invisible Man and the Tramp, for Mr Marvel had supplied no information about the three books, or the money with which he was lined.' The incredulous tone had vanished and a shoal of reporters and inquirers were already at work elaborating the matter. Kemp read every scrap of the report and sent his housemaid out to get every one of the morning papers she could. These he also devoured. He is invisible, he said, and it reads like rage growing to mania. The things he may do, the things he may do. And he's upstairs, free as the air, What on earth ought I to do? For instance, would it be a breach of faith if... No. He went to a little untidy desk in the corner and began a note. He tore this up half-written and wrote another. He read it over and considered it. Then he took an envelope and addressed it to Colonel Aid, Port Burdock. The Invisible Man awoke even as Kemp was doing this. He awoke in an evil temper, and Kemp, alert for every sound, heard his pattering feet rush suddenly across the bedroom overhead. Then a chair was flung over, and the wash stand tumbler smashed. Kemp hurried upstairs and rapped eagerly. Chapter 19 Certain First Principles "'What's the matter?' asked Kemp when the Invisible Man admitted him. Nothing, was the answer. But confound it. The smash! Fit of temper, said the Invisible Man, forgot this arm and its sore. You're rather liable to that sort of thing. I am. Kemp walked across the room and picked up the fragments of broken glass. All the facts about you are out, said Kemp, standing up with the glass in his hand. All that happened in Iping and down the hill... The world has become aware of its invisible citizen. But no one knows that you are here. The invisible man swore. The secret's out. I gather it was a secret. I don't know what your plans are, but of course I'm anxious to help you. The invisible man sat down on the bed. There's breakfast upstairs, Kemp said, speaking as easily as possible, and he was delighted to find his strange guest rose willingly. Kemp led the way up the narrow staircase to the Belvedere. Before we can do anything else, said Kemp, I must understand a little more about this invisibility of yours. He had sat down, after one nervous glance out of the window, with the air of a man who has talking to do. His doubts of the sanity of the entire business flashed and vanished again as he looked across to where Griffin sat at the breakfast table. A headless, handless dressing gown, wiping unseen lips on a miraculously held serviette. It's simple enough, and credible enough, said Griffin, putting the serviette aside, and leaning the invisible head on an invisible hand. No doubt to you, but... Kemp laughed. Well, yes, to me it seemed wonderful at first, no doubt, but now, great God, that we will do great things yet. I came on the stuff first at Cheslestow. Chesilstow? I went there after I left London. You know I dropped medicine and took up physics. No, well, I did. Light fascinated me. Ah, optical density. The whole subject is a network of riddles, a network with solutions glimmering elusively through. And being but two and twenty and full of enthusiasm, I said, I will devote my life to this. This is worthwhile. You know what fools we are at two and twenty. Fools then or fools now, said Kemp. "'as though knowing could be any satisfaction to a man. "'But I went to work.' Like a slave. And I had hardly worked and thought about the matter six months before light came through one of the meshes suddenly, blindingly. I found a general principle of pigments and refraction, a formula, a geometrical expression involving four dimensions. Fools, common men, even common mathematicians, do not know anything of what some general expression may mean to the student of molecular physics. In the books, the books that Tramp has hidden. There are marvels, miracles. But this was not a method. It was an idea that might lead to a method by which it would be possible, without changing any other property of matter, except in some instances colours, to lower the refractive index of a substance, solid or liquid, to that of air, so far as all practical purposes are concerned.' Phew, said Kemp. That's odd. But still, I don't see quite... I I can understand that thereby you could spoil a valuable stone, but personal invisibility is a far cry. Precisely, said Griffin, but consider visibility depends on the action of the visible bodies on light. Either a body absorbs light, or it reflects, or refracts it, or does all of these things. If it neither reflects, nor refracts, nor absorbs light, it cannot of itself be visible. You see an opaque red box, for instance, because the colour absorbs some of the light and reflects the rest, all the red part of the light, to you. If it did not absorb any particular part of the light but reflected it all, then it would be a shining white box, silver. A diamond box would neither absorb much of the light nor reflect much from the general surface, but just here and there where the surfaces were favourable, the light would be reflected and refracted, so that you would get a brilliant appearance of flashing reflections and translucencies, a sort of skeleton of light. A glass box would not be so brilliant, nor so clearly visible as a diamond box, because there would be less refraction and reflection. See that? From certain points of view, you would see quite clearly through it. Some kinds of glass would be more visible than others. A box of flint glass would be brighter than a box of ordinary window glass. A box of very thin common glass would be hard to see in a bad light, because it would absorb hardly any light and refract and reflect very little. And if you put a sheet of common white glass in water, still more if you put it in some denser liquid than water, it would vanish almost altogether. Because light passing from water to glass is only slightly refracted, or reflected, or indeed affected in any way. It is almost as invisible as a jet of coal gas or hydrogen is in air, and for precisely the same reason. "'Yes,' said Kemp. "'That is pretty plain sailing. "'And here is another fact you will know to be true. "'If a sheet of glass is smashed, Kemp, and then beaten into a powder, "'it becomes much more visible while it is in the air. "'It becomes at last an opaque white powder. "'This is because the powdering multiplies the surfaces of the glass "'at which refraction and reflection occur. "'In the sheet of glass there are only two surfaces— In the powder, the light is reflected or refracted by each grain it passes through, and very little gets right through the powder. But if the white powdered glass is put into water, it forthwith vanishes. The powdered glass and water have much the same refractive index, that is, the light undergoes very little refraction or reflection in passing from one to the other. You make this glass invisible ...by putting it into a liquid of nearly the same refractive index. A transparent thing becomes invisible if it is put in any medium of almost the same refractive index. And you will consider only a second you will see also that the powder of glass might be made to vanish in air... ...if its refractive index could be made the same as that of air. For then there would be no refraction or reflection as the light passed from glass to air... Yes, yes, said Kemp, but man's not powdered glass. No, said Griffin, he's more transparent. Nonsense. That from a doctor, how one forgets. Have you already forgotten your physics in ten years? Just think of all the things that are transparent and seem not to be so. Paper, for instance, is made up of transparent fibres and it is white and opaque only for the same reason that a powder of glass is white and opaque. Oil white paper fill up the interstices between the particles with oil so that there is no longer refraction or reflection except at the surfaces and it becomes transparent as glass. And Not only paper, but cotton fibre, linen fibre, wool fibre, woody fibre and bone kemp. Flesh, Kemp, hair, Kemp, nails and nerves, Kemp. In fact, the whole fabric of a man, except the red of his blood and the black pigment of hair, are all made up of transparent, colourless tissue. So little suffices to make us visible one to the other. For the most part, the fibres of a living creature are no more opaque than water. Great heavens! cried Kemp, Uh, of, "'Of course, of course. I was thinking only last night of the sea larvae and all the jellyfish. Now you have me. And all that I knew, and had in mind a year after I left London, six years ago, but I kept it to myself.' I had to do my work under frightful disadvantages. Oliver, my professor, was a scientific bounder, a journalist by instinct, a thief of ideas. He was always prying. And you know the knavish system of the scientific world? I simply would not publish and let him share my credit. I went on working. I got nearer and nearer, making my formula into an experiment, a reality. I told no living soul because I meant to flash my work upon the world with crushing effect and become famous at a blow. I took up the question of pigments to fill up certain gaps. And suddenly, not by design but by accident, I made a discovery in physiology. Yes? You know the red colouring matter of blood – It can be made white, colourless, and remain with all the functions it has now. Kemp gave a cry of incredulous amazement. The invisible man rose and began pacing the little study. You may well exclaim. I remember that night. It was late at night. In the daytime one was bothered with the gaping, silly students, and I worked then sometimes till dawn. It came suddenly, splendid and complete in my mind. I was alone. The laboratory was still, with the tall lights burning brightly and silently. In all my great moments I have been alone. One could make an animal, a tissue, transparent. One could make it invisible, all except the pigments. I could be invisible, I said, suddenly realising what it meant to be an albino with such knowledge. It was overwhelming. I left the filtering I was doing and went and stared out of the great window at the stairs. I could be invisible, I repeated. To do such a thing would be to transcend magic, and I beheld, unclouded by doubt, a magnificent vision of all that invisibility might mean to a man, the mystery, the power, the freedom drawbacks I saw none. You only have to think, and I, a shabby, poverty-struck, hemmed-in demonstrator teaching fools at a provincial college, might suddenly become this. I ask you, Kemp, if you, anyone, I tell you, would have flung himself upon that research and I worked three years, and every mountain of difficulty I toiled over showed another from its summit. The infinite details and the exasperation. A professor, a provincial professor, always prying. When are you going to publish this work of yours, was his everlasting question, and the students, the cramped means, three years I had of it. And after three years of secrecy and exasperation, I found that to complete it was impossible. Impossible. How? asked Kemp. Money, said the invisible man, and went again to stare out of the window. He turned around abruptly. I robbed the old man. I robbed my father. The money was not his... And he shot himself. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed listening to part four of The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells. If you want to head over to my Patreon page, you will see that I have now uploaded my latest offering exclusively for my patrons The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. I do regular stories and classic poems just for my patrons, so if you're interested in that, or just want to support The Well-Told Tale, please do consider visiting patreon.com slash thewelltoldtale. There's a link in the description. That's all for this time. I'll be back next week with the penultimate episode of The Invisible Man. I hope you can join me.